Hello, you lovely, lovely people, and welcome to the latest episode of the BJJ Strength Podcast. Today, I'm really excited to bring to you an interview with Jiu-Jitsu Black Belt and Jiu-Jitsu author, Chris Matakas. I'd describe Chris as maybe a philosopher of Jiu-Jitsu, if there is such a thing, and he's authored, I believe it was five books, he mentioned in total i'll put links in the show description below so you can you can get access to them but several different books um related to i suppose the art of learning jiu-jitsu and different ways that you can approach your learning jiu-jitsu to make the most out of the art itself but also how to, to you know to improve yourself as a person so jiu-jitsu being a self-development tool rather than just a martial art in itself and the book that I have in my hand right now that I've I've started reading and will you know finish reading of Chris's is My Mastery Continued Education Through Jiu-Jitsu. Again, that's My Mastery Continued Education Through Jiu-Jitsu. And a fantastic book that gives you ideas, strategies, techniques about how you can make the most out of your training time on the mat and also how you can take some of those lessons and apply them in your day-to-day life. So I've got it's a great it's a great conversation with Chris. Um and I've talked about, you know, I I I read a lot, I have read a lot in the past and I didn't I did a podcast about some of the books that have influenced my life, but Chris takes the, you know, the reading to a whole other level and you know incredibly intelligent, incredibly eloquent in, in talking about you know various subjects we talk about philosophy we talk about um you know how jiu-jitsu what you can take from learning in jiu-jitsu and how that can make you a, a better in life we talk about um axiomatic phrases um the one you know one of the key books he read the way of the peaceful warrior that's, that you know got him got him into um you know, started on his journey in terms of, you know, reading and self-development, uh, you know, a ton, a ton of other stuff. We talk about something called Newtonian Jiu-Jitsu, um, opposing forces in Jiu-Jitsu, um, the idea of simplicity in Jiu-Jitsu, a lot of really great things. We talk about the ego. The ego is one of those topics in Jiu-Jitsu that when you think about how does Jiu-Jitsu help you in your wider life, ego tends to be one of the things that's thrown around. So we talk about ego and how we define ego and what that actually means and how actually having an ego is maybe absolutely necessary in some respects. So it's a really, it's an interesting conversation. It's different to the normal guests that I have, but I think no less impactful, maybe even more impactful in some ways to, you know, what that can mean to your jujitsu. And just from reading Chris's book myself, um, I've already changed my relationship and the way that I changed by see jiu-jitsu. So I hope you're going to get a lot from the show. Um, I think it's going to be a really enjoyable one. So one last thing before we get into the show, guys, and that is to announce that we have a great deal for you and, and the latest sponsor coming onto the BJJ Strength podcast, uh, that, and that's Grappido Trainer. I've talked a lot about the Grappido Trainer over the last couple of weeks, I've even done a full video review on YouTube that I'm going to link in the in the show description. But essentially, what the what the Grip Pedo Trainer is 
it, it looks like a torpedo. It's pretty. It's a pretty cool piece of kit. Um, a long cylindrical tube with a big steel metal ball on the end, and it has four fins on the bottom. So it's an incredibly versatile grip training tool. And there are a bunch of uh, you know reviews on YouTube. I think it's uh, it's perfect, right? It's perfect for the grappling athlete because I've been testing this now over the last six months, and we've been working together, and. There's the number of different things that you can do it and to do with the Grippedo trainer in terms of rotational strength using a sand bucket, rotational rotational strength um, by you know attaching a weight and, and twi twisting it with your hand. Very very good. I think they call it a skull crusher is one of the exercises where you grab onto grab onto the end of the ball and hold it up with the weight on the bottom. I particularly love that exercise because it forces you to to really bring the thumb into play and, and the fingers a lot more than we do with many, many other grip strength training activities. Um, and I could really notice how... Uh, how much work I needed in the area of the thumb when I first started doing those exercises because I could really feel you know, the tissue in the hand being sore the next day, which so it really highlighted a gap for me in my grip strength training and a bunch of other stuff as well, guys. So head over to head over to grippedotrainer.com. I'll put the link below. And but most importantly, what they've what they've gone out of the way to do um, specifically for the listeners of the of this show, because they know how you know, important grip strength trainer is grip strength training is to the jujitsu athlete, is to give uh, ten dollars off uh, any order of ninety five dollars or more. And I think the entry level model is $99. So pretty much any order, you're going to get $10 off. So about 10% off. It's a huge discount. And you, you'll you see this piece of kit when um, hopefully you, you order one. And uh, it's, it's something that you're going to pass on to your kids. And your kids are going to pass on to your grandkids. And your grandkids' kids are going to, if we're all still alive, or everyone is still alive on this planet at that point, is going to pass on and so on and so forth. It's an incredibly robust piece of kit that's fantastic for developing grip strength so at the very least guys take a look at the um take a look at the video i'm going to link below for the full review of this product it's it's a fascinating bit of kit oh, and i've got to give you the voucher code as well to get that discount if you use the code bjj strength one word again that's a bjj strength one in one word you're going to get ten dollars off any order overnight pretty much any model right because they, they start at 99 dollars. but go check them out guys and, and build some cast iron grips with the grip edo trainer now finally let's get into the show you're listening to the bjj strength podcast helping you be your best physically on the mats and off the mats with your host, BJJ Black Belt and physical optimization specialist, Lawrence Griffiths. Okay, yeah, we're going. We're good. Anyway. Okay, guys, welcome to the latest BJJ Strength Podcast. And today, I'm very lucky to have with me Chris Matakas, who is a Jiu-Jitsu Black Belt, um, but also a Jiu-Jitsu author. I've been describing Chris, and Chris, you may or may not like this title, but to my friend, <laughs> explaining the person who's going to come on is a philosopher of jujitsu in some ways. Um, but you've got, a, you know, you've got a rich background in jujitsu. You've done MMA, and today we, we, we will talk about a number of things. But uh, you know, what really struck struck me about Chris is reading one of his books, My Mastery. 
continued education through jujitsu is the, the whole idea of uh, not not thinking about jujitsu purely in terms of the techniques that you use, but how you know a simple idea can change the way that you see jujitsu completely. Well, you haven't at least that's what the book did for me. Um, but we'll talk about all this really good stuff. So, uh, Chris, with that, why don't you say hello? Hello, everybody. Uh, Lawrence, it's a pleasure, man. Thank you for having me on here, and I'm just excited to talk about jujitsu and how it applies to the rest of our lives. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and jujitsu being jujitsu as the vehicle is one of the chapters of the book, right? And how it. And yeah, I, so I really believe that you know pursuing anything sincerely, you kind of learn the constituent elements of mastery that apply everywhere else. And for me, I have studied jujitsu with the best teachers, the most amount of time I've put into anything, uh, with the most opportunities I've ever had, and the most free time, you know, from basically 22 to 32, jujitsu is all I've done. And I've been grateful to be able to sit with it and develop a certain level of competency that I'm capable of. And then to see how that translates to every other area of my life. And that mastery, say, in jujitsu is no different than mastery in writing or good relationships or business and trying to find those corollaries that then I can share with my students so they can use jujitsu to be a better whatever it is they already are. Because not everyone that does jujitsu is going to come in and make it their life. For yeah. most people, it's a hobby. So if you can give them something that then, then translates into the rest of their life. And I think that's an important point, right? I think so many students come in and they think that the teacher demands of them that they train seven days a week twice a day and it's just not feasible for 99% of students and for the teacher to come in and say hey guys whatever jujitsu is for you if it's just a way you lose weight or if it's a skill you want to learn or if it's just a community that you want to be a part of mm. you can come in and you can use jujitsu as a vehicle for your own development in whatever way jujitsu fits into your life and it's different for all of us yeah you said something I've just made a note of that that I'll come back to but before we get into the, the, the deeper stuff. Just give people a, a rundown of your background. You're a black belt. I believe you got your back, black belt from Ricardo Almeida, but you fought MMA as well. Give people a bit of context around you. From yes, sir. Sure. So I graduated college in 2008, and then I took my intro class in jiu-jitsu at Professor Almeida's school a week later. Mm -hmm. And it's been my life for a little over a decade. I, um, I started teaching with Professor Almeida when I was a blue belt, helping out in classes, just trying to do the warm-up and be an uki. And then uh, I competed a little bit. I competed from white, blue, purple, and brown. It was never really a big part of my journey, but it was definitely a part. And I kind of used those measuring sticks as reasons to train very sincerely and purposefully. And um, Professor Almeida opened up his second school in 2013 in Newtown, Pennsylvania. And I became the head instructor there. And mm -hmm. it was an amazing opportunity. So I taught for Professor there for about four, four and a half years. And then I got my black belt, and with his blessing, I opened up my own academy, which is in Florence, New Jersey. Um, I fought MMA very briefly, three amateur fights. They all went well. They were the funnest nights of my life, celebrating afterwards with my friends. Yeah. Uh, in hindsight, that might have been the best part of the experience for me. It was just bringing everyone together through that. Uh -huh. And uh, for me now, no more competing. I started writing about jiu-jitsu uh, I guess it's been same deal, about four years, and I just really enjoy writing. I enjoy teaching. I love jujitsu and writing for me has been pairing all those things together in a way where I can try to share jujitsu with others and through another discipline. Mm. And what was your, what was your education in? 
exercise science, kinesiology and physiology. Was it really? Well, we'd, we'd hit it off on that respect because I, I love that kind of stuff. But I was, I was, it's interesting because you thought maybe you might have done philosophy um, or some other, some other subject where you haven't read your book, one of your books. Yeah, it's funny. I, to be honest, you know, I, I went to college to play football and then I got mm. hurt and I couldn't play football. So I was going to be a gym teacher, and then I realized that wasn't really for me, but I love fitness, so I went down the kinesiology and physiology route. Mm -hmm. And then I graduated college, and I got a job as a strength coach while I was starting jiu-jitsu and going through that process. And my bosses were big readers. They were two amazing guys that were very into personal development. Mm -hmm. And around 22 years old, I started actually becoming a student, you know, and reading books. I remember the first one I read was The Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman. And that kind of just set me off. And then since then, it's just been trying to accumulate as much knowledge as possible through all the humanities. And uh, now for me, reading is such a foundational part of my education. And I would rather miss breakfast than my morning reading. Yeah. 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 I, I used to commute to work when I was in London. And I'd have an hour bus journey there and back. And I'd read for an hour. I'd either read or I'd write. Awesome. And, and it was amazing. But then since I've moved to the US and now I work from home, I don't have the commute. And last year, I really slacked on my reading. Okay. And, I've, and I've noticed already this year that I've made the habit of 30 minutes every morning. Good for you. That's fantastic. And it's, it's, it's a, a, my, how much my life accelerates in so many different areas from just reading, mm -hmm. uh, consistent reading. And well, I'm not, I very rarely read novels now, sometimes biographies, but it's mostly as textbooks and, you know, um, however you want to phrase it, but it can be such an accept. And I did a podcast actually uh, several weeks ago or last year about, I think it was five or six books that had really impacted my life. Oh, and, what were those books? Oh, wow. Um, one were, I, I, I believe I mentioned yours towards the end of the podcast. I just started I it. <laughs> I just started it. The very first book was, uh, change your life in seven days. There's a guy called Paul McKenna in the UK, and he was known as a hypnotist, but I suppose he's a self-development expert. And it's you know it's a very marked very marked in in terms of um, marketing lingo, right? Change your life in seven days. It's you know it's a bit um, doesn't really work that way. But it was the very first self-development book that I read out mm. of university, and it was the the book that set me on my journey. Um, I'm trying I need to look on my shelf to get the rest of the books. Um, the Four Hour Work Week, the Tim Ferriss book, mm, one right, of his, yeah. had a big impact on me. Oxygen Advantage, which was um, which is a more kind of you know, physiology based type book. I think I mentioned that one. Some of Tony Robbins' books as well. You know, so some you know some some big some big things in that. Um, but I was going I was going to ask you. There's a story that you allude to at the start of your start of your book. Mm -hmm. that actually you don't allude to it um, Professor Almeida says that Chris came into the academy one day and said he's got rid of the TV from his room and just filled, <laughs> filled, the, room with, filled the room with books <laughs> I'd like you to tell us a bit about that story yeah sure so it was funny um, I started training in 2008 right after graduating college moved back home with my parents and I like I said just started reading and I got into a lot of Buddhism and minimalistic lifestyle to the point mm -hmm. where my life consisted of jujitsu, reading, going out in nature, and that was about it. Yeah. Uh, and it was purposeful. I felt like I graduated college and I was out into the real world, but nothing had changed. 
And the adults who I always thought knew everything, I was now an adult and realized that none of us really knew anything. So to the degree that I could, I wanted to pursue that understanding. At the very least, try to understand how to use my finite time. So I went to the books and I started reading as much as possible. And I found that my education was basically structured around learning on the mat, learning in books, and then learning from myself alone in nature. And that became my life. And I had a very monastic lifestyle for 10 years where I was able to focus on the things I wanted because there are just so many distractions and they're so accessible now with Netflix and deliveries of food and all the ways you can waste, I don't want to say waste your time, but use your time suboptimally. So I tried to just, I'm either an all or nothing kind of guy. If I allow myself to enjoy those things a little bit, I enjoy it too much. (laughs) So I just walled them all off for 10 years and studied uh, jujitsu. Wow. Uh, so it was almost straight away you found jiu-jitsu. And when did you make the decision after finding jiu-jitsu that you were going to be all in? Yeah, I remember it clearly. So I took my first intro class. We learned a break fall, a hip toss, a cross-collar mm-hmm. choke. And I had no money. I just graduated college. I was in debt. And I went back home to my parents and said, I found the thing I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I remember giving my debit card the last, like, you know, 200 bucks or whatever I had <laughs> to sign up. And... I knew that day that this was a problem of infinite complexity that was worth trying to solve. Yeah. And it, for me, kind of took the place of what football was in high school because I went to college to play, couldn't play anymore, and had a void for four years. So jujitsu picked up where I left off. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I was going to ask you, it's a void of infinite possibility, right? I think, I think yeah. is what you, what you said. Um, I think for you with jujitsu, do you have, uh, is, is there an end game, a vision in mind, or is it, you know, thinking about maybe some of the, you know, the Buddhism type teaching, you mentioned you read a lot of Buddhism and it's more about the journey rather than destination itself. Do you, how do you look at jujitsu and in that respect? Yeah. So I think it changes throughout your journey. I remember when I started, I didn't like the idea that there were people we'll call it of worse morals who could physically hurt me. And that might be a very unsophisticated way to begin an adventure. But for me, that's what drove me. I wanted to really learn self-defense. And then it became a vehicle for personal development, which it still is. But now more than anything, it's a vehicle through which I try to help other people develop themselves. So for me right now in my own journey, I'm more concerned with helping my students experience jujitsu, learn jujitsu and apply that as a vehicle for personal development. Yeah. Then I am, I guess, directly myself. Yeah. And I think as I get older and as you feel the wear and tear of training so hard for so long, that shift will probably continue to happen. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think jujitsu is the way that I can serve the community of Florence, New Jersey, because it's the only skill I have. So I'm going to use that to try to improve everyone's lives and you don't, you don't have to do much, right? You just need to get them in the door and yeah. let you get to work on them. Because like we were talking about earlier, our environment doesn't demand the cultivation of a lot of virtues, right? Life is pretty mm-hmm. easy right now for most of us if we're fortunate enough to have an easy life. Yeah. So I think jujitsu becomes that environment that forces you to go on that own little hero's journey where you go into the unknown, you face yeah. struggle, you procure something that your ordinary life couldn't give you, and then you go back to your ordinary life elevated and then you use whatever you've taken away from jujitsu to improve the lives of those around you yeah and at what point did it happen for you where you said you know 
kind of similar to you know my experience with jujitsu. I went in because I wanted to to learn how to fight, to learn to look after myself and defend myself. And then I'm not sure at what point it became a journey for me in terms of, right, it's a self-development tool to better myself. It's not just about learning jujitsu. But there was a very clear point about a year ago where I was at a crossroads with, do I fully pursue jujitsu and try to open a school Mm -hmm. um, or do I go down another path? And it's a decision I've made a couple of times and repeatedly I keep making the decision of I want to open a school at some point and it's, it's in the works, right? it will, it will yeah. happen. And one of the reasons that drove me to that decision was, okay, how can I have the biggest positive impact on people's lives? Mm-hmm. And the more that I coached and I started to coach more when I was here in the U.S., I could see the impact it had people on people's lives. When people would come up to me after, after a class and say, I, I, I learned that technique and I just, you know, oh, wow. It, it, there was one arm bar I taught someone and he literally called it the game changer. And, mm-hmm. and it wasn't so much that I taught him the technique, but it was kind of the excitement and the happiness that he got from that. I could see how then that radiates into the rest of his life. Yes. And for me, it was, it, it, it was, it was a big thing. So I, I, I started this as a question, didn't I? I think, <laughs> I think the question was, at what point did you start to see it as a self-development tool? And the, the reason I ask you that is, if you can remember, is I remember being, you know, white in a blue belt and you, I hear black belts talk about, oh, jujitsu is life, life is jujitsu and these kind of lofty ideas. But I always, always found it hard until recently to try to actually bring that to uh, to make it a reality, a reality for me in, in terms of what that actually meant. So I think it would be really good for listeners to hear you maybe discuss that a little bit. Yeah, so I think it was very serendipitous that I started legitimately reading and trying to understand and study philosophy at the exact same time I started studying jujitsu. Mm-hmm. So they go so parallel with one another that consider me a white belt in academia as I was a white belt in jujitsu. And then I yeah. tried to progress those at the same time and couldn't help but see the corollaries between them. You know, what makes for a better life is the same exact thing that makes for better guard passing. You know, there, there were so many corollaries there. And I think that progressed throughout the years as I developed more in jujitsu and had a better understanding. I developed more in whatever understandings that I could come up with in philosophy and religion and mythology and all those things. And I think it all came to a head when I was, I believe I was still a brown belt. I mm-hmm. had torn my pec working out and realized I needed to make a change. You talk about your life kind of having this same theme where you keep going back to wanting to open up your school. Yep. And Carl Jung had this idea of circumambulation where your life will continue to have those cyclical experiences as you sort of tunnel in toward what you're supposed to be. Mm. And I went to college to play football and got hurt. And I never really liked competing too much in martial arts but I grew a lot from it, so I did it, and then I thought I was going to compete again, and then I got hurt again. And I, I saw this recurring theme in my life, and I was probably 29 years old or so, and I realized that I needed to kind of get away and reassess. So mm-hmm. I took off three months. I went on a solo road trip across America to all the national parks, and it's the longest wow. I've ever gone, yeah, without being involved in jiu-jitsu. And I just camped out. I went, you know, Colorado, Utah, California, Wyoming, mm. Montana. And I just went away to reassess and try to understand what was the best use of my time because I was teaching jiu-jitsu. I was the lead instructor at my teacher's school for a few years, and I felt that I wasn't growing as much as I wanted to. I, I'd sort of maybe 
maxed out that role for personal development. So I wasn't sure if I wanted to keep doing jujitsu, try something entirely different. So I went away. And after those three months, I came back and realized that jujitsu is the best way that I know of to help people. Yeah. So I figured I would continue doing jujitsu, but I wanted to do it in a way that would force my continued growth. And the next logical step was to open up my own school and try to lead a community like that. And I have gotten what I hoped for. It's been a great challenge. I've met yeah. the most amazing people and it's forced me to grow in all the ways where I was weak and start to develop a team around me of people who have great skills that I don't so that together we can make a more positive impact on the world. So to answer your question, I think the study of philosophy and jujitsu kind of went hand in hand. Yeah. Then I took time off from both of those and just went away to the woods and yeah. realized that that's how I wanted to use my time. And then I came back and it's been full steam ahead since. It's interesting that you say about taking the time off and taking those three months off and really removing yourself from jujitsu. And I think very, people very rarely do that. Um, or they very, if they do take the time off from jujitsu, they rarely take the time off from doing. And we talked yeah. a little bit about, um, you know, having distractions and so many distractions. You look at smartphones, you mentioned Netflix. Um, and I know I'm really guilty of this kind of stuff, but just having that time, to go that forced time to go away and it doesn't necessarily need to be three months it could be just uh, 20 minutes a day where you take the time um and just sit and do nothing and it's not not meditate but just do nothing for 20 minutes and see and see what happens and see what comes you know just percolates in in your in your mind what do you what do you think to that kind of idea yeah, I agree completely. And if you look at the stories from mythology and religion and history, that seems to be the trend, that before anyone does something of considerable value, uh, they tend to go away first and reassess. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Jesus spent time in the desert. The Buddha spent time meditating under a tree. Uh, and the hero yeah. always has to kind of go into chaos to, to figure stuff out and find something new to come back to his status quo and make it a little bit better. And like you said, it doesn't have to be three months. Like I try to meditate every day. That's actually, I have a long list of resolutions. And the big one for me was meditate every day. Because okay. I know how valuable it is, but it's so easy not to do. It's so yeah. easy just to not sit there quietly. Yeah. But we are so good at adapting to our environment that if our environment doesn't change, we don't change. We get stuck in this one mode of living, doing the same habits, Mm -hmm. Every day, right? Get up, get breakfast ready, drive to work, work, drive home, dinner, watch something, go to bed. And that may work today, but if what you're doing today isn't in line with the overarching vision of your life, you need to constantly reassess that, whether mm -hmm. go away to the woods for a day or a month or just meditating for 10 minutes or just sit and journal and think about, you know, did what I do today bring me closer to my distant goal of who I want to be? Mm. Mm. You, you, so nature seems to be a big theme for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I will walk through a park most days. That okay. doesn't happen every day, but most days. Um, whatever's bigger than us, God, you know, whatever you want to call it. I never felt that in a building, yeah. but I always felt it outside. Yeah. For me, that's where I kind of recenter and recalibrate. For me, it's the ocean. Oh, very cool. What about the ocean? I, 
I grew up by the I grew up by the ocean, or we call it the sea, but the ocean, right? The water in a coast in a coastal town, five five ten five ten minutes away from the beach, um, and it's a beach in in a industrial town in South Wales, so it's not as glamorous as it may sound, but it was a beach, and it wasn't until I moved away to actually I went to university, um, to the most landlocked city in the UK. Okay, a place, place called Leicester, and I didn't realise at the time, and it was when I moved there I realised how much I missed the coast, and then every time I, I then go to the beach, and now in California, we 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 intend we're still going to move towards the coast. Hopefully, mm-hmm. that's our that's our big goal this year is to move to the coast. And there's something about it's it's nature, right? And it's I I can't I can't I can't describe I can't explain what it is or why it happens. But every time I go to the go to the ocean, whether it's the smell of the air, whether it's the sound of the waves, or just looking out to vast, I call it nothingness, right? Because there's a lot of stuff there, but it's yeah. nothingness in terms of civilization, right? It's just the water. I find that's an incredible reset for me. Or just going in the water, putting my feet in the water for thirty seconds. It's uh, it does something to me, and I think maybe for a lot of people as well. Yeah, I would think so. Right, we need to find a way to sort of free ourselves of ourselves, mm-hmm. and there's no better way to do that than say jujitsu. That's so difficult that you have to forget about yourself while you try to figure it out, or nature when you just get connected with something so much bigger than yourself. And yeah. It's a very calming effect. It's a really special experience. I would hope everyone can find a way to, no matter how ordered your life is or you know where you live, find time to commune with what's bigger than you. And you know, in a building, we're walled off, right? And if I can only see five feet in front of me to drywall, I feel like that's kind of, it limits my thought process. But when I'm outside, like you described, looking out at a big horizon, yeah. I feel like my mind gets bigger and can open up more as well. I always wonder about about that piece about looking out over the horizon, and I've always been fascinated with having a house that has a view. Doesn't really yeah. matter what the view is, but some kind of view. And my wife and I have talked about this because we like to hike, you know, one at least you know once a week, every other week. Um, and I think it could come back to the uh, you know it's evolved within us to ha- to want to have a view so we can see predators. We can see potential attackers. I don't yeah. know if you thought. I don't know if you thought about that. You look. I think you have. Absolutely. Oh, the look of your face nodding. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny you say that because I've completely changed the way I thought about jujitsu because I'm writing another book and I'm doing nothing but listening and reading Jordan Peterson. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Do you know what he's been mentioned to me about three or four times in the last month? And my okay. rule, and my rule is, if someone mentions it to me, two different people mention mention it to me within a short succession of time. I have to look into him, so I have to look into him now more. That's a good rule. Yeah, he is really. He talks about a lot of things, but the thing that I find the most value in is his understanding of the archetypal themes in mythology and religion and narrative and how they apply to our own lives mm-hmm. and following that hero's journey. And I had heard it first described by Joseph Campbell, and it made some sense. And then I heard Jordan Peterson describe it, and it made perfect sense. And mm. he could reference those truths through any of the humanities. And it's changed the way I view jujitsu because he talks about that idea of you go on a hero's journey, and mm. you leave home, and you encounter some anomalous chaos, a dragon, and you fight that dragon. And as a result, you're stronger, and you come back to your community. You don't have more to offer your community as a result of your time away from it. Yeah. And I think that's what we do every day on jiu-jitsu, right? So you go into the mat, you leave your family or your job, and then you confront 
a dragon, right? Your training partners or the challenge that jujitsu provides. And what doesn't serve you dies off and mm. you acquire new information and you grow from that. And then you come back outside of the jujitsu academy into your home, say you with your kids and you're a better father as a result of the lessons you've learned. And I'm really starting to view jujitsu as a tool within the hero's journey, but mm -hmm. it's the journey for a lot of us. And we talk about that idea that our environment doesn't offer a lot of resistance. So we can yeah. create an environment through jujitsu that does, that allows us to go on those daily hero's journeys to let what doesn't serve us die off and be re reborn a little bit better each day. And I think that's really what jujitsu does for us. When we say jujitsu is a vehicle for personal development, mm -hmm. jujitsu is a competence hierarchy to use a Jordan Peterson terminology. And oh, what was that? Sorry, what was that term again? Competence hierarchy okay. or dominance hierarchy. Yeah. And the idea would be as you ascend that hierarchy, you acquire new skills. And mm -hmm. at the top of that hierarchy would be the eye, like on the top of a pyramid and a dollar bill. Okay. And the idea is the thing at the top of the pyramid is the thing that pays attention and learns. And that's the thing that allows you to succeed in all pyramids. So when we say jujitsu is a vehicle for personal development, jujitsu is a competence hierarchy that as you ascend it, you acquire the skills that allow you to transcend all competence hierarchies mm. and make you a better husband, father, uh, businessman. And I really think that for most of us, that's the thing that jujitsu is that doesn't really get discussed. And it's the thing that if we could learn to view jujitsu through that lens and see what makes for better guard passing and better sweeps and learning how to guillotine and then apply those fundamental lessons to being a parent or a husband or an employee at work, we can really use jujitsu as a vehicle for the development of our entire person and not just the athlete within us. There are going to be people listening right now that have just heard what you said there and think about, I just want to go to jujitsu and just choke people out. I don't yeah. care about an eye at the top of a pyramid, which, uh -huh. which brought to mind uh, to, to me Sauron's eye from Lord of the Rings. Is it Sauron's yeah, eye? Yeah, absolutely. Pretty cool. Um, but I, I agree with you a lot, and it took me a long time to kind of wrap my head around this in my jujitsu journey. But what would be, you know, you know maybe two or three things that kind of core principles that you would learn in jujitsu. Um, I, I can think of resilience being one, you know, resilience yeah. and persistence that, that the two, two or three things that people could take from jujitsu that then help them in other parts of their life. Absolutely. I would say the first thing would be the ability to learn to pay attention because mm -hmm. jujitsu, each role is essentially a problem that we're trying to solve. And we have a hypothesis, you know, I think this guard pass is going to work and we do the experiment, we try it out and it worked or it didn't. But if we collect data, if we pay attention to why things did not work, mm -hmm. where we met resistance and what we could have done better to inform our decision next time, we'll be a little bit better. And that's something that I noticed. I always do that in jujitsu. You know, I always bring a notebook onto the mat. I always have a purpose for my training. I'm working on this idea. Yep. And I hyper-focus on that idea. And then after class, I ask questions. I take more notes. And then I come in the next time around a little bit better. And I do it again. And you continually revivify your understanding through that cyclical process. But mm. I never did that anywhere else in my life. I yeah. love all my friends, but I was never as purposeful about building relationships as I am about getting better at passing half guard. So yeah. 
because it's the instant feedback in jiu-jitsu, you know immediately when something was wrong. You know, you get choked. We simulate death because of it. And yeah. you don't get that kind of feedback in life. You know, your bad habits in jiu-jitsu get you caught today, but a bad habit in life may take 30 years to catch up with you. Yeah. So the first one would be pay attention. The second one would be after having pay attention, confront the dragon, right? To use that archetypal terminology. Mm -hmm. You know, you're training and say, my great friend Pete keeps sweeping me in Delahiva guard. I need to learn how to pass Delahiva guard. And I could just sh shy away from it and try to mm -hmm. avoid his Delahiva guard and let the dragon grow, so to speak, as I get weaker and it gets bigger. Or I could confront it. I could pay attention and say, I don't know how to pass Delahiva guard. So I'm going to spend all my time in Delahiva guard. And I'm going to confront it head on and purposefully. Mm -hmm. And that's easier said than done. It's it's easy to do in jiu-jitsu, but it's a lot harder to do in life when you see the dragon that you don't want to face. Yeah. And then the third one would be maybe, maybe the most important after that. So you pay attention, you confront the dragon, and then embrace the idea of death and rebirth, right? Identify as you are the thing which changes across transformations rather than this like solid fixed structure that's Lawrence or Chris because by fully identifying with what you are, that impedes your ability to become something different. Mm. So for me and my own jujitsu experience, I've always been more concerned with learning and figuring out what I'm doing wrong than reinforcing how well I'm doing things right. And by, to use another Peterson phrase, by making friends with what you don't know, you allow what doesn't serve you to burn off and then you come back a little bit stronger. So I think paying attention confronting something when it presents itself as needing attention mm. and then allowing that to inform future action. Those are the things that jujitsu teaches us that if we apply that to the rest of our lives, we're good to go. You mentioned relationships with friends and how you didn't really try to progress the relationships with your friends previously. And I think relationships is probably the best example for how we can fall into the same day-to-day -day patterns, whether it's with yeah. my wife, with my kids, with my friends, with my parents, whoever it may be, um, and learning to pay attention, right? Learning to pay attention. Okay, we've just got into the same argument about doing the dishes. Um, okay. yep. my, wife, my wife and I don't argue about doing the dishes, but just in case she is listening. <laughs> <laughs> because I do them all. No, I don't. <laughs> but you're learning to pay attention and then kind of confronting the dragon. And I think when you, you, you did say it was confront, confront the dragon, so you, you get... I'm trying to think of an example. We were talking before we started recording about kids, right? Mm -hmm. And I've got I've got two girls, and I was a little late because I had the school run. And we were talking about how it's how what's it like? And I said equal parts amazing versus challenging. And we had I had a pretty challenging time last night because she went to bed and then woke up and didn't want to go to sleep. Wanted to come into bed with us, mm -hmm. and you know the easy thing to do would be to pull her into bed. She falls asleep. But then you got into that habit, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. I, I, I've yelled at her twice in three years. And we were talking about this. And I don't feel proud about it. Um, but I think everyone kind of, you know, does, does it now and again. And I can feel it build up inside of me. Mm -hmm. And I have to remind myself that I'm getting frustrated with her going to bed. But how do, I re how do I reason with her and teach her that, you know, that's not the way to deal with things. But I remind myself that she's... She's a three-year-old. Right? Yeah, she, how do you reason with a three-year-old? Uh, you can't, right? It's, it's, almost, it's almost impossible. And I, she said, I, didn't, I, don't, I don't want to sleep in my bed. 
Mm. Why don't you want to sleep in my, your bed? Because my bed's silly. <laughs> what do I say to that? So for me, maybe confronting the dragon is, okay, what, what raises my temper? You know, what, yeah. frust, what frustrates me and how do I pay attention to the things that frustrate me and maybe equally pay attention to the things that bring my frustration down to help me better deal with it. Um, but I think relationships are such a critical area where you can fall into that uh, just repeated pattern uh, without, because you, your emotions and you, because uh, my background was psychology before I went into the world of work and, and, okay. and stuff. So I think about this a lot. And, you know, the emotional reactions that we have are much quicker than the way we're able to think about those emotions. Uh, let me put, put, put this another way. At least the way I look at it, you know, our emotions can guide the way we act much quicker than we can realize that they're yeah. making us act that way. Yes. Yeah. And that's one of those things where to the degree that we sort ourselves out and align all those sub drives within us when your three-year-old won't go to sleep yeah. and two in the morning and you're exhausted, to have that hierarchy clearly defined and maybe some sort of axiomatic phrase to remind you of that, that you can just call upon at any moment. Mm. To, it, it's like, you ever hear the book or read it, Principles by Ray Dalio? I've, I've watched a lot of his videos, listened to his podcast. It's on my list. I haven't got yeah. to it yet, but um, yeah. And I think the idea that the book's title after Principles, having yep. principles so that you make a decision once and then you don't have to make it again. And it just makes... Decision-making efficient. You always, you know, check back and make sure that decision still serves you. But to have those non-negotiable, predetermined responses to the many things that happen in life, and if you can structure them where you codify, this is just another one of those experiences. And when the, those experiences happen, a guy like me responds X, it makes mm -hmm. it a lot easier because there's just, there's so many things to attend to. Yeah. in our lives and it's so chaotic and for me you know with the idea of following that hero's journey that we're mm -hmm. all on and to use more peterson terminology because that's just what i've been studying exclusively almost for a while uh, to voluntarily confront the unknown on behalf of the good right mm -hmm. to embrace the role of the archetypal hero and go into what i don't know to learn more to be better and for me that informs my relationship with my fiance, um, my school, my training, my academic study, the things I'm trying to do in writing. Mm -hmm. As long as I'm voluntarily confronting that dragon and allowing what doesn't serve me to die off, then what I'm doing is okay. And, and it serves my overarching vision. So you being the guy that you are, you know, you want to be the best dad you can be and only yelling twice in three years is a pretty amazing accomplishment. I would imagine <laughs> not being a parent. I hope so. Thank you. I would think so. But I guess having that easily called upon axiom that, you know, I am the father raising the exploratory hero and I'm here to serve my child. So yeah. calling upon that in that moment where maybe you're tired, your back hurts, it's three in the morning, you're stressed about work tomorrow, makes it a little bit easier to respond in the way that you would respond were emotion not involved in it. Mm. So... I so the, the the example you gave of an axiomatic phrase there was, yeah, I think you just made that one up on the fly. It's like, you know, I am the father trying to guide my 
this girl to be a hero through her journey, right? Which mm. is, I'm, 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 I'm going to need to borrow that one. Um, <laughs> Please do. So do, do you have any other examples of maybe phrases you use on a, on a, on a daily basis to give people a bit more flavor for this? And, and that has changed throughout the years. Okay. Um, right now, it's voluntarily confront the unknown on behalf of the good because mm. the value of those phrases are its applicability across disciplines. So yeah. the more general generalist approach that applies in my health, in my finances, in my relationships, in my jujitsu, the more useful it is and the less thinking that's required in that moment. So I guess I have tried to always find things that apply in all areas of life, whether it's, you know, the the Solomon idea of this too shall pass, or, you know, mm-hmm. I can't think of any others offhand that I've used, but for right now, it's voluntarily confront the unknown because voluntarily means that I'm choosing to do it and I'm choosing to not neglect that which requires attention. So that means you're stepping up. It is active over reactive. So voluntarily confront the unknown. So for me, you know, when I choose to do it, then I operate as best I can in conjunction with my overarching goal of Everything is a vehicle for personal development. And in order for me to grow, I need to go somewhere where I'm not strong mm-hmm. so I can acquire strength. Mm. And then I do that for the betterment of myself, which means I'm a better partner to my fiance. And outside of our couple, I'm better in my community and then hopefully the world. So my advice would be try to find a quick axiom that applies across the many disciplines of your life. And the more generalist it is, the more you can immediately infer the meaning in the specific area that you're addressing at that time. I was using one while I don't know if it directly came from your book, but I can't remember. I'm going to flick through. And I think one of the chapters is about remember, remembering that you know nothing. Yeah. And I had it I had it on my whiteboard. I've read on my whiteboard at the start of the year, but I had it on my whiteboard for about six or seven weeks. And I would tell myself that, you know, remember that I know nothing or we know, we know nothing. And it, it served me well in so many different areas. If I was having a con- just a conversation with someone, I think particularly with someone that you've not met, we, we're humans and we make snap judgments and it's a survival mechanism. And it's not, I think, saying that you don't judge is a lie. I think we all make judgments. Yeah based on you know how the person looks and acts etc and it became a very very good phrase for me and that's just one example of remember that i know nothing i know nothing about that person it reminded me to you know don't judge that person based on you know maybe how they look how they speak based you know give them all the respect that you would when first meeting someone until they give you a reason to otherwise and that's just one example actually um but even in jujitsu remembering that I, I'd say, I'd say to myself, remember that I know, remembering that I know nothing, I would look at it almost then with a child's eyes. I could yeah. be rolling, I could be rolling with someone who's a white belt or a blue belt and someone I, I tapped out a thousand times before, but I wouldn't, I, it was almost became like I didn't, wasn't fighting the person anymore. I was fighting what they put in front of me. I'm going on a tangent, but, um, Please, I, it's a great tangent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I like that idea. And I think just you know, axiomatic phrases to try and... Do you think it breaks the pattern? Do you think that's one of the things that it does and it stops to remind you? And that's one of the reasons why it works so well. I think it breaks the pattern of letting emotions guide your immediate actions. 
mm. because your emotions may not be fully in line with your higher goals, right? The meta goals for your life. Yeah. So you said that you studied psychology. I really like the idea that the many impulses within us are essentially sub-personalities and they're all vying for the light, right? They're all vying to be atop that hierarchy in that moment. Mm -hmm. And anger is really good at yelling louder than all the other emotions and all the other drives. So putting at the top of that pyramid within yourself, within your own psyche, something like voluntarily confront the unknown on behalf of the good and having that speak the loudest makes the anger not as loud, but it also gives you reference to, I don't have to just listen to what I'm experiencing inside my head right now. What is what's going on inside my head and in the physiology when your body changes from those emotions, what is that in contrast to my optimal response in this moment? And that's hard to detach yourself from what you're experiencing. Mm. But to the degree that we can detach ourselves in that moment and ask what actually will take me closer towards my highest goal, easier said than done. But I think a lot of the mistakes we make, some are from omission, but a lot of them are from commission, right? We just respond impulsively in a way that didn't serve us. And if we can not have to play so much defense within ourselves by just aligning everything properly so we can play more offense in the world, it makes life a lot easier. Is that something that's been helped uh, through meditation? I have to think it does, right? If our goal is to be able to detach from what we're experiencing, we need to know that the voice inside our head that's talking is one aspect of us, but it's not all of us. And if you don't meditate, you get caught in those habits of daily just attending to the thinking Mm -hmm. mind where you think that's all that is. And you identify fully with that. And that thinking mind is going to be very upset when your three-year-old comes in in the middle of the night when you're trying to get a good night's sleep. Yeah. But if you are training the ability to disassociate with those thoughts and to recognize that you're the space in which those thoughts arise, you'll probably respond more favorably than you would otherwise. It was one of my biggest lessons through, through meditation. I've meditated uh, the last six months hasn't been as consistent as I like, but about ten, about ten years, and have you know read various books and tried different versions of meditation. And one of the biggest lessons for me was that the voice that goes on in your head is not doesn't it's not you. I yeah. the way I like to think about it is your brain has got the millions of synapses that are firing off all the time. They're just firing off, and it's almost like static. Um, you know, imagine you, you're just flicking through the TV and you're in between the channels and it's just static and it's just firing off all the time. Um, most of it is nonsense. The yeah. vast majority of it is nonsense. And you you become one of the, this could have been from the Paul McKenna book I, I, I read. I can't remember, but almost sitting within a theater and imagine that you're watching a screen of your thoughts and what's actually going on is one of, the, one of the visualizations that I use. And it, that was a big lesson for me, realizing that just because my brain has fired off some garbage in my head, <laughs> that it's almost like, like a, people call it a brain fart sometimes. They use that term in a different context. But it's firing off this garbage, and that doesn't mean, that doesn't have to be me. That's just my brain just blurting out a bunch of rubbish and a bunch of noise. I can choose whether I react to that or not. Yeah, and I think that thinking mind is a reflection of the wisdom within you, but mm-hmm. it's a, not a whole reflection. 
Like I'm very aware that my intuition and my body knows much more than my analytical mind does. Mm. And I've been thinking a lot lately about the idea of your conscience, that voice inside your head that's talking to you. Yeah. Um, because the idea of Jung had this idea of the self, which was who you could be in your totality if you manifested yourself completely. Mm-hmm. And the self makes things meaningful today to guide your path towards the actualization of becoming that thing. And I have to think that that conscious voice in your head that tells you, hey, bro, you really shouldn't be eating that ice cream, or you should probably go work out today, or you should probably read more difficult books. The, hmm. the voice that we, in our best moments, we listen to, but often we don't. I have to think like that's the archetype of the self talking to you now to make itself manifest. Mm. and it's so easy to ignore that voice. I know my own life, the times that I, I have not, I can remember clearly making huge mistakes in life when something in me said, bro, don't do this thing. <laughs> and you do that thing, and we all know what happens from there. Yeah. Um, I think this – I really wanted to speak – I wanted to speak to you about a lot of stuff, right? But one thing was the ego. And the reason I wanted to speak about the ego with you is because of all the st- all all of the reading and the studying that you've done, but also because it seems to be the most common thing or the main thing that people talk about with jujitsu and self development yeah. is that it, it helps you helps you get rid of the ego. It helps you beat the ego. I, I think nothing is ever going to get rid of the ego. For one, I think two, the ego isn't always bad. I think what you call the conscious there and the self, some people would call the ego. The ego can also be the thing that goes, no, you need to do that workout today. No, you don't need to eat that fourth piece of, <laughs> that, that fourth piece of apple pie. Yeah, um, you know, the ego can be good and, and it can be bad, but also the ego is just a man-made concept to try to understand the mind. Yeah. So I, I wanted to get, I, I want no, gen, no specific question about the ego, but I, I definitely wanted to speak, to speak to you about it. Yeah, so I guess it would be dependent upon how you define the ego, right? Because okay. depending on what school of thought you come from, it's something different. Mm. I've recently been studying a lot of Carl Jung, and this could be completely off because he's very hard to understand. But it, it seems like the ego is sort of the bridge between the conscious and the unconscious in a way that, the persona, like the mask we all wear, who we are in society is a bridge between consciousness and the world. And it's a sort of um, negotiation, this ongoing negotiation. And Mm. ego for me seems very in line with the need of survival, right? It's a very fixed protective structure. Yeah. And like we were talking about before, in order to grow, you have to go somewhere where you're not strong. And that's why, the joker is always the precursor to the savior, right? You have to be a fool before you can be a master. And the ego is trying to protect itself saying in a sense, you know, I am enough as I am and it's okay, which is true. Mm -hmm. But when that impulse for self-preservation is too strong and you continually try to preserve what you are at the expense of not becoming what you could be, it becomes a problem. Mm -hmm. And, with that idea of making friends with what you don't know. When we think of ego, we think of someone who says, I know everything. You know, there's nothing I need to learn. I'm good. I'm I'm fixed structure and I got it. Yeah. And that's an example of being tyrannical toward yourself. So for me, I think we need an ego because like for me, high school was a big, I'm sorry, football in high school was a huge part of my life. Mm -hmm. And I loved identifying as a football player from ages, you know, 15 to 18 
I liked the identity I had and I felt good about it. I liked wearing the Jersey on game day to school. You know, it yeah. was like a status thing and you need the ego to an extent, but I have to think maybe once we get past that point in life where now we start caring about people more than we care about ourselves as a father or when you have a partner, I, I think the ego serves a lot less use in adult life. It, it, we still need it, but I would hope that at this point in our lives, like I'm not sure, how old are you, Lawrence? 36. 36, and I'm 32. I think we've been humbled enough by life not to have the need to say we know everything by now. Yeah. And I guess, again, it would depend how you define the term, but I thought ego was very important for me when I was younger, but it was also important in jujitsu. Like, if I'm honest with myself, I think the reason why I developed the skill I did was because I hate losing. And I didn't like that people were better than me. So it made for really good jujitsu, but probably not good for a holistic development as a person. Yeah. But if my guard got passed, I would be upset until the next time I trained and specifically until I trained with that person and it didn't happen again. Yeah. Never in a competitive way toward them, but just out of, you know, we'll call it shame for myself. Mm -hmm. And that was a really good tool to acquire a great skill, but it wasn't a really good tool to find contentment and peace and joy in the present moment. So yeah. maybe depending on your goal, if, if you can have that honest self-assessment and you can see that I am working toward this goal because of, we'll call it ego, great. But when you achieve that goal, maybe leave the ego behind. Yeah. And, and, may, and you talked about earlier, you know, for people to decide what jiu-jitsu is for you or what jiu-jitsu is for them. And if you're someone who wants to be a world champion competitor, maybe losing sleep over the fact that someone passed your guard and then, you know, thinking about it. And therefore, you know, if, if that is the ego, if there is such thing as an ego, then, you know, maybe that's a good thing. But like you said, if it does that lead to long-term contentment, the ability to let things go, to let go of the fact that someone cut you up on the freeway and you shouted at them and then you're angry because you shouted at them and then you're telling yourself that you're a bad person because you shouted. Yeah. Yeah, so that it's, it comes down to you know, what jujitsu is for, for you in many ways. Yeah, and I, I really wonder if you can achieve the highest level of success in anything without a massive ego. Right. I don't, I don't know if you can. That's kind of par for the course. Like you have to be driven by something to do something so exceptional that requires such a great sacrifice. There's a, the there's a theory, sorry to interrupt you, but I was oh, going to say there's, there's a theory that many of the top business leaders are psychopaths. <laughs> have, you, have you ever heard that? Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to speak in generalist terms, but maybe you have to be, right? I, I would say, because if I look at myself and I, I think of, so I just went through a very traumatic psychological experience where I tore both of my pecs. Wow. And yeah, and we can talk about that if we want to. I'd almost rather not because I'm coming out of it. I had surgery okay. 14 weeks ago and everything is great. But okay. for months I was in two slings and you learn a lot about yourself and you can't use your arms for a while when yeah. you're used to doing that. Uh, certainly at a you know athletic level that allows you to do kind of whatever you want. Mm -hmm. um, and, sorry, where were we going with this? <laughs> I said we were, we were talking about um, to, you. You said that you can't be almost have to have an ego. Oh yes, ego to be yes. successful. And I said there are some people. I don't think there's. I'm not sure if there are studies on this. Maybe there are. People can let me know. But the theory that a lot of business leaders are actually psychopaths because they don't care about other people and. 
Absolutely. And so I've been thinking a lot about that because sitting with two pecs, reflecting on my life, and I reflected on the relationship I had to myself in whatever sports I played. And in every training session, I was kind of tacitly driven by the sense of, I am not enough as I am, but if I get a little bit better today, I'll be a better version of myself and I'll be like almost more worthy of being. And then I try to sit with that and understand it. And I went back to reading some Buddhism things and it seems like we're driven any high achiever, right? Is mm -hmm. driven either by like love or shame. And I guess you could kind of pull shame in with the ego thing, that mm -hmm. feeling of not being enough, right? The not enoughness. And that's a powerful motivator and that will drive you to do a lot of things. And I think being driven purely by love is so much rarer mm -hmm. that if my hypothesis is right, that at the most fundamental level, you're either driven by a sense of pure love or I'm not enough as I am, which we could link to the ego. I have to think the vast majority of high achievers are at least initially started out linked to I'm not enough as I am, which would be driven by the ego rather than love. So I think it's incredibly common. I think it almost has to be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. To tell yourself that every day, that in many ways that you're not good enough to yeah. make yourself get better. And you can hear people like, I'll, I'll say LeBron James, because I listened to an interview with him recently, and he's, he's never content. He's yeah. never fully content with how good he is. And that, you know, maybe there are other ways. You know, maybe you could do a study across all these high achievers and find out actually it's not that important, but it does seem to be a common theme and that I've never been satisfied. But, you know, but what does that mean for satisfaction in, in the day-to-day -day life? Maybe, yeah. maybe he's satisfied with other stuff, but he uses it as a driver just for his basketball. I don't know. I think that's the question. And you mentioned Tony Robbins earlier, and yep. he codified it as the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Those are two very different things. And, you know, in general, we're all pretty good at achievement, but fulfillment's the hard part. Yeah. Especially when your achievement is driven by a sense of not being fulfilled. And that's the reason why you're achieving. Um, I notice as I get older, I kind of continue to shift towards more of a focus on the fulfillment part yeah. than the achievement part. But it's tough, man. It's a balance. Maybe you need a little bit. Maybe you need a little bit of both, right? You need a little. I, I'm a. I'll call myself a guitar player, right? I, I can play the guitar, but I, you know, I'm constantly getting better. And there are times when. There are times when I feel like I'm Jimi Hendrix and I'm there in my bedroom and I'm, I'm hitting all these notes and it sounds amazing. And there are times when I'm like, what am I like? I'm a, I'm a million miles away from being Jimi Hendrix. And it's, yeah. um, and it's a, that constant always. Well, Tony Robbins calls it constant and never-ending improvement, right? Canny. And mm -hmm. I think that's one of his axiomatic phrases, C-A-N-I, that he uses in one of his books. So even someone who talks about fulfillment, it's, it's that uh, maybe it's, it's, the, it's the learning for sake, the sake of learning because you enjoy learning and improving from that respect rather than just to run away from pain or some kind of discomfort that you've got to try to fix. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I think if you take the terminology of being and becoming, right? Mm. We are so good at the becoming part, but the whole part of becoming is so that you can be right? And you can be better. So I think the sweet spot is when you practice the being within the becoming, because like mm. we said, we're always going to be working on something. You're always going on your own hero's journey because to sit still is to fall behind, right? Our environment continually adapts and we have to adapt with it. 
So to identify with the process of becoming and to find enjoyment in that. And like you said, you carve out time for your reading. I make myself do a gratitude meditation and I use the Tony Robbins one. He's an amazing guided meditation on YouTube. I listen to that most days in the sauna and it's a really simple structure. It's three things I'm grateful for and then it will go three things, well wishes for others and then three things I want to happen and I practice gratitude as if it already has and just building gratitude in. So we do uh, character assignments with the kids in our jujitsu academy. That's one of the okay. favorite things to do. So they have their jujitsu stripes and the kids love the stripes and the belts. Yep. But we also have character stripes. So they have a month challenge where they have to do something and if they achieve that goal, they get their green stripe. And we've done, you know, 20 random acts of kindness. We've mm. done, you know, right now it's actually voluntarily confront the unknown on behalf of the good. And you can be purposeful about that. And one we did around Thanksgiving was gratitude. Yeah. And we talked about, guys, this is the antidote to like all negative emotion because you can't be angry or sad when you're practicing gratitude. Yeah. It was so cool to have these kids starting at four years old have to articulate what they're grateful for and to see them try to do it in the moment. And it's a skill that some of them have not cultivated yet. I know I didn't for a long time mm-hmm. because – it's so easy to, like you said, relationships are so important, but they're just so ubiquitous that we don't pay attention to them. Mm-hmm. But to develop the skill to be able to be grateful. So if you're, to go back to you, right, imagine if your, your daughter walks in at three in the morning and you're exhausted, imagine if your first response was gratitude rather than anger. I mean, that's a complete yeah. kind of experience. So you train that skill of gratitude. Mm. And to the degree that we do, our quality of life improves. I have a phrase that I tell myself every day, so much so that I'm probably going to get it tattooed. And nice. I've got a, I've got a ton of tattoos, so it's kind of um, maybe maybe not so strange. But it, the phrase is one day. And I told this to my wife, and <clears throat> she said, "Well, one day sounds like you're procrastinating. Oh, I'll do it one day. I'll do it one day." Mm-hmm. But it came from a poem that. I think my wife had shared with me and the poem goes along the lines of, I I forget what it says, but the idea being that remind yourself that one day it's going to be the last time that that kid, your child comes into your bedroom and wants you to go into the bedroom with her. It's a heavy idea. Yeah. And one day it's going to be the last time that you're going to change a diaper. It's going to be the last time that you're going to wake up and, you know, pick them up from the crib and they're going to be screaming, crying. And it makes you appreciate the fact that you go, yeah, that's one, one day that's going to happen. And one day you're going to miss it. And that's, um, I forget, I forget where we were going with this, but it's, um, for, for me just kind of, uh, you know, appreciating the, the, the whole process and just not, you know, gra- gratitude, right? That's what we were talking about. And it makes me a lot more grateful for that little stuff like, okay, I'm doing the dishes now. This is a pain in the ass, but isn't it amazing that I've got fresh, clean running water when yeah. so many, so many, yeah. so many people in the world don't. And those little, those little things. And again, our, our lives, you know, in the Western world are, are so easy, right? You do a fresh running water. I've never yeah. had to think about water. So actually, yeah. we just partnered with Justin Wren. We're helping build a well in Africa. And that was part of our January okay. focus in the school. And to, again, go to these kids and talk about, like, some people don't have water. That's so foreign to them. It's foreign yeah. to me. I. I only went without water when I would make a mistake hiking out for a few days and not know where the fresh water source was. But that was a purposeful pursuit of not having water. And we're, we're just, we're so comfortable all the time. And that 
comfort makes things like your Wi-Fi isn't working yeah. seem like, you know, some terrible massive dragon outside your castle kind of thing. And you have to train that skill because if we don't, it's like our souls atrophy from the comforts of our daily life. It's, uh, I have a theory that we, that we as humans, we're, we're constant innovators and we constantly want to find better ways to do things, quicker ways to do things, easier way to do things to actually do less work. But it's made our lives so comfortable. And if you look at the the stats that, you know, there's never been a better time to be, al be alive in terms of our basic needs being met. Mm -hmm. We live longer for, for most people, right? There's always exceptions, but there's never been that so many people out of poverty, I think, in the world. And, you know, you can critique all these things, but in general, there's never been a better time to be alive. But the fact that we've got all these comforts actually maybe takes away some of the challenges and actually, you know, a smartphone is an amazing thing, right? And I've got my, got my iPhone here and, you know, the stuff that I can do with my iPhone is amazing when you think about it. Imagine you could tell someone even 25 years ago that you could watch live sport from around the world in the palm of your hand while at the same time speaking to your parents 4,000 miles away on Skype, yeah. right? It, it just it, it blows you away, but at the same time, it can, it can suck you in. It can really suck you in. So it's almost, it's kind of um, contradictory, right? So what, maybe what we need as humans is challenge to make to, to, to allow us to grow, but we're all always trying to find ways to make things easier for us. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And it's walking that fine line. Yeah. That would be that Taoist symbol of yin and yang. And you have the white paisley and the black paisley, but that line that runs in between that mm. one foot in comfort and one foot in struggle. Like that's that sweet spot where if we go too far in either direction, either our souls die or we die. But mm -hmm. In that sweet spot, you find just enough resistance to grow, but to be able to keep playing the game. Yeah, what's the, there's an analogy, isn't there, about a butterfly and where someone helps the butterfly come out of the, the shell. I forgot, I'm not sure what the name is. I think you must have heard this one. And they, they think, oh, I'm going to help the butterfly get out. So they, yeah. they, they, the cocoon, right, a cocoon. So they break the cocoon open and the butterfly comes out of the cocoon and, they, and the butterfly dies. Yeah. The butterfly needs that resistance to grow its wings and to become a butterfly. And it's an analogy, but I think it's a good way to, to visualize why we need some of these things. Yeah, and to take it out further, you know, in a sense, we're the butterfly mm -hmm. and our culture is opening up that shell that allows us to come yeah. out and emerge. And the role of the culture is to allow the individual to rise up, go on their own hero's journey, Go pursue some 